33 years ago in the year 1988 Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky published a book called Manufacturing Consent and since then the book has sold millions of copies around the world especially those of us who want to understand how the world works how it functions and how news media plays an important role in that it's been a really really important book and uh, it has definitely ge- inspired a generation of journalists and the basic idea in this book is that how in free societies in democratic societies where we think that media is free and uh, most of the information and news that we are getting is from the independent sources but those sources are not really independent and most of these media platforms they are owned by specific elite a very small group of richest of the richest people and uh, since these elite they have to rule the world they can't go on oppressing people directly in today's day and age so instead what they do is they create this consensus among different people among masses and they do it through news they create certain narratives they filter out a lot of stories and uh, tell us only the things that they want us to focus on they create fictitious left wing and right wing media and their narratives their conflicts while in reality both of them left wing and right wing are complicit in this and uh, ever since the publication of this book we've only seen that the power has just concentrated a little more the propaganda in news media have become more prevalent and how certain information certain news items if they are narrated in a particular way by influential people how they can change the narrative of an entire country or a society and there are numerous examples of that and in the updated versions in the recent events in in the light of those events you'll find a lot more examples of the same so it's a it's a really interesting book and i would urge you to read it and uh, in today's podcast i'll narrate you certain pages from the book about how this propaganda model works and uh, how it achieves the desired result for the elites so let me narrate it now the mass media serve as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace it is their function to amuse entertain and inform and to inculcate individuals with the values beliefs and codes of behavior that will integrate them 
into the institutional structures of the larger society. In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. In countries where the levers of power are in the hands of a state bureaucracy, the monopolistic control over the media, often supplemented by official censorship, makes it clear that the media serve the ends of a dominant elite. It is much more difficult to see a propaganda system at work where the media are private and formal censorship is absent. This is especially true where the media actively compete, periodically attack and expose corporate and governmental malfeasance and aggressively portray themselves as spokesmen for free speech and the general community interest. What is not evident is the limited nature of such critiques as well as the huge inequality in command of resources and its effect both on access to a private media system and on its behavior and performance. A propaganda model focuses on this inequality of wealth and power and its multi-level effects on mass media interests and choices. It traces the routes by which money and power are able to filter out the news fit to print, marginalize dissent and allow the government and dominant private interests to get their messages across to the public. The essential ingredients of our propaganda model or set of news filters fall under the following headings. 1. The size concentrated ownership, owner wealth, and profit orientation of the dominant mass media firms, advertising as the primary income source of mass media. That is the second part of it. Third is the reliance of the media on information provided by government, business, and experts funded and approved by these primary sources and agents of power. 4. Flag as a means of disciplining the media. And 5. Anti-communism as a national religion and control mechanism. These elements interact with and reinforce one another. The raw material of news must pass through successive filters, leaving only the cleansed residue fit to print. They fix the premises of discourse and interpretation and the definition of what is newsworthy in the first place, and they explain the basis and operations of what amount to propaganda campaigns. The elite domination of the media and marginalization of dissidents that results from the operation of these filters occurs so naturally that media news people frequently operating with complete integrity and goodwill, are able to convince themselves that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news values. Within the limits of the filter constraints, they are often are objective. The constraints are so powerful and are built into the system in such a fundamental way that alternative bases of news choices are hardly imaginable. In assessing the newsworthiness of the US government's 
urgent claims of a shipment of MIGs to Nicaragua on November 5, 1984, the media do not stop to ponder the bias that is inherent in the priority assigned to government-supplied raw material or the possibility that the government might be manipulating the news, imposing its own agenda and deliberately diverting attention from other material. It requires a macro alongside a micro view of media operations to see the pattern of manipulation and systematic bias. The five filters narrow the range of news that passes through the gates and even more sharply limit what can become big news, subject to sustained news campaigns. By definition, news from primary establishment sources meets one major filter requirement and is readily accommodated by the mass media. Messages from and about dissidents and weak, unorganized individuals and groups, domestic and foreign, are at an initial disadvantage in sourcing costs and credibility. And they often do not comport with the ideology or interests of the gatekeepers and other powerful parties that influence the filtering process. Thus, for example, the torture of political prisoners and the attack on trade unions in Turkey will be pressed on the media only by human rights activists and groups that have little political leverage. The US government supported the Turkish martial law government from its inception in 1980. and the US business community has been warm toward regimes that profess fervent anti-communism, encourage foreign investment, repress unions, and loyally support US foreign policy. Media that chose to feature Turkish violence against their own citizenry would have had to go to extra expense to find and check out information sources. They would elicit flak from government, business and organized right-wing flak machines and they might be looked upon with disfavor by the corporate community for indulging in such a quixotic interest and crusade. They would tend to stand alone in focusing on victims that from the standpoint of dominant American interests were unworthy. In marked contrast, protest over political prisoners and the violation of the rights of trade unions in Poland was seen by the Reagan administration and business elites in 1981 as a noble cause and not coincidentally as an opportunity to score political points. Many media leaders and syndicated columnists felt the same way. Thus, information and strong opinions on human rights violations in Poland could be obtained from official sources in Washington and reliance on Polish dissidents would not elicit flak from the US government or the flak machines. These victims would be generally acknowledged by the managers of the filters to be worthy. The mass media never explain why Andrei Sakharov is unworthy and Jose Luis Macera in Uruguay is unworthy the attention. And general dichotomization occur naturally as a result of the working of the filters. But the result is the same as if a commissar had instructed the media, concentrate on the victims of enemy powers and forget about the victims of 
friends. Propaganda campaigns in general have been closely attuned to elite interests. The Red Scare of 1919 and 20 served well to abort the union organizing drive that followed World War I in the steel and other industries. The Truman-McCarthy Red Scare helped inaugurate the Cold War and the permanent war economy. And it also served to weaken the progressive coalition of the New Deal years. The chronic focus on the plight of Soviet dissidents, on enemy killings in Cambodia and on the Bulgarian connection helped weaken the Vietnam syndrome, justify a huge arms build-up and a more aggressive foreign policy and divert attention from the upward redistribution of income that was the heart of Reagan's domestic economic program. The recent propaganda disinformation attacks on Nicaragua have been needed to avert eyes from the savagery of the war in even Salvador and to justify the escalating US investment in the counter-revolution in Central America. Conversely, Propaganda campaigns will not be mobilized where victimization, even though massive, sustained and dramatic, fails to meet the test of utility to elite interests. Thus, while the focus on Cambodia in the Pol Pot era was exceedingly serviceable, as Cambodia had fallen to the communists and useful lessons could be drawn by attention to their victims, The numerous victims of the US bombing before the communist takeover were scrupulously ignored by the US elite press. After Pol Pot's ouster by the Vietnamese, the United States quietly shifted support to this worse than Hitler villain with little notice in the press, which adjusted once again to the national political agenda. Attention to the Indonesian massacres of 1965-66 or the victims of the Indonesian invasion of East Timor from 1975 onward would also be distinctly unhelpful as basis of media campaigns because Indonesia is a US ally and client that maintains an open door to Western investment and because in the case of East Timor, the United States bears major responsibility for the slaughter. Propaganda campaigns may be instituted either by the government or by one or more of the top media firms. The campaigns to discredit the government of Nicaragua to the support the Salvadoran elections as an exercise in legitimizing democracy and to use the Soviet shooting down of the Korean airliner KAL-007 as a means of mobilizing public support for the arms buildup were instituted and propelled by the government. The campaigns to publicize the crimes of Pol Pot and the alleged KGB plot to assassinate the Pope were initiated by the Reader's Digest with strong follow-up support from NBC TV, The New York Times and other major media companies. Some propaganda campaigns are jointly initiated by government and media. All of them require the collaboration of the mass media. The secret of the unidirectionality of the politics of media propaganda campaigns is the multiple filter system discussed above. The mass media will allow any stories that are hurtful to large interests to pitter out quickly if they surface at all. 
In sum, a propaganda approach to media coverage suggests a systematic and highly political dichotomization in news coverage based on serviceability to important domestic power interests. This should be observable in dichotomized choices of story and in the volume and quality of coverage. Such dichotomization in the mass media is massive and systematic. Not only are choices for publicity and suppression comprehensible in terms of system advantage, but the modes of handling favored and inconvenient materials differ in ways that serve political ends.